0: Welcome to BioTalk. My name is Daniel Bragg, Senior Vice President at Locust Walk, and you are listening to BioTalk, our podcast for biotech dealmakers. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Shanaz Solomon, the CEO of Recode Therapeutics. Recode is a clinical stage genetic medicines company using its selective organ targeting lipid nanoparticle platform to power the next wave of mRNA and gene correction therapeutics. Shanaz is a physician. Drug developer and deal maker with over 25 years of experience building and transforming small and large biopharmaceutical companies. Prior to becoming CEO of Recode in January 2022, she held senior leadership roles at Elector, Theravance, and Roche. She also had senior portfolio management roles at Genentech and Gilead. Shanaz has been honored by Forbes, Silicon Valley Business Journal, Fierce Biotech, and the National Diversity Council, and she is the chair of Women in Bio's board-ready program. Welcome to biotech, Shanaz. Great to have you here today. So to kick things off, I'd love for you to provide our audience with some background as to what led to your initial exploration of biotech.
1: Uh, So I characterise myself as a physician, drug developer, deal maker and company builder, but I really am a physician and a physician activist at my core. Uh, I grew up in South Africa under apartheid and uh, therefore the activist part, and I practised in South Africa in the public health context, in the mines, and then later in the UK in the National Health um, Service. And part of the reason I bring that up is because the aperture through which I view clinical problems, innovation, science, is very much influenced um, by my roots. And that involves both um, thinking creatively about how to use mechanisms such as creative deal mechanisms to accelerate getting drugs to patients, but also how to think creatively about using deal constructs to enable and drive widespread access of those medicines to patients throughout the world Um, after i trained in south africa i uh, was fortunate as i said to practice but then also to to uh, go to oxford where i uh, went to business school and did development economics and that influenced this idea of um having an impact at a much more macro level than simply at an individual practicing level. And that really led to my exploration of biotech as an industry. And the pass through into biotech happened to be through banking. It was a pragmatic choice because of an H-1B visa, (laughs) but also a good way to learn about biotech as an industry at um, a a thousand foot level. I ultimately made the transition into biotech because I am an operator and focused on science and, you know, how science um, and translational science in particular uh, can drive clinical medicine, uh, can drive to the cl- enable a drive to the clinic and to patients um, fast. And then, um, you know, got into the deal business because of my background in both um, business and clinical medicine. And so some of the early deals at uh, at Gilead, which was an HIV company looking to diversify, were really focused on bringing together both science and inno- you know innovation in new therapeutic areas um, to help Gilead diversify. And some of the early deals I did with Chorus in cystic fibrosis, with myogen in pulmonary arterial hypertension, um, and ultimately setting up the deals uh, for... Um, pulmonary fibrosis uh, were really examples of that, you know, a way to find innovative science, in companies and then use the business engine to help accelerate the drive to the clinic. And some of the products that came from those acquisitions like inhaled lysine and antibiotic and CF, um, and the first new treatment for PAH, were a product of um, you know, Gilead's translational science development prowess applied to a smaller company's innovative um, discovery engine. And so it's really been this uh, great confluence of business, science and medicine and uh, an activist route, which have been the fundamental reason uh, for me um, to continue to live and thrive in our industry. What ultimately brought me to Recode was doing transformational science. So pivoting from large companies like Gilead, Genentech, and Roche to smaller companies like TheraVance and Elector more recently, the primary goal has really been to look at innovative technologies that can enable broad um, and transformative changes. And yet, Recode, we're doing just that. We have a delivery platform which uh, we believe will enable the next generation of genetic medicine. And happy to tell you some more about that.
0: Excellent. Uh, And I'm definitely eager to learn more. Before I get there, lovely and and very, very impressive and really meaningful background. Um, It makes a lot of sense how you know, got interested in the deal-making mindset and kind of got to appreciate the potential for deal-making to help really move products forward, take science forward, and ultimately get drugs in the hands of patients. But you also mentioned uh, keen interest in kind of the activist side of things coming from your physician background in South Africa. I'm curious, alongside the deal-making, uh, how you also have incorporated activism as you've gone through your career, or you know how that frame has also shaped where you've gone today.
1: Certainly. I mean, the most tangible example of that has been um, what we had accomplished at Gilead through um, our HIV global access program. And this was an initiative in which we took Gilead's life-saving HIV treatments, one one pull once a day regimens that completely transformed the arc of HIV and its natural history. And um, essentially did technology transfer deals with Indian generic companies to enable those companies to make generic copies of the same drugs for the developing world markets. Before we did those um, partnerships, there were about 30,000 patients that had access to Gilead's medicines. Um, Last I checked, there's something like 20 million patients in the developing world that now live productive lives as a result of those transactions. And I think this is a a great example of how um, activism combined with innovation and the right mindset around how to do this can really drive widespread impact that's one example. When we talk about um, some of the changes in the US around reproductive healthcare, the autonomy of the FDA, um, diversity in our industry and on boards, I'm happy to talk about how uh, my activism <laughs> um, stance on those have also helped me to think thoughtfully and appropriately about how to, to, to drive um, positive change in the right way.
0: Excellent. Well, 30,000 to 20 million patients, if I got those numbers correctly, is is incredible. Uh, So you mentioned the really innovative work that Recode is doing with your targeted lipid nanoparticle platform, SORT. Uh, Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about the platform and really what makes Recode's approach so unique.
1: Certainly. Um, So thanks to COVID, uh, lipid nanoparticle delivery and mRNA Medicines have become the most clinically validated technology uh, in genetic medicine that, that exists. And the question for the field was really how to go beyond vaccines and beyond the liver, because these first generation lipid nanoparticles are all essentially trafficked through the liver through binding to ApoE, um, a protein which then enables, you know, LDL receptor uptake in the liver, and that's how they are fundamentally cleared. mRNA on its own, of course, is inherently unstable, and so it requires the packaging to enable the mRNA to be taken up um, and to uh, be active. Our primary competitive edge is what we call the selective organ-targeted lipid nanoparticle platform, or SORT-LNPs for short. And what we do differently is we uh, engineer uh, biochemically distinct lipids. So take the four component uh, lipids in a traditional LNP and add a fifth lipid and a sixth lipid to help the body sort and direct these LNPs to organs beyond the liver. Our lead programs, for example, are in the lung and they have the ability, in fact, to bypass the liver. So this is a highly selective tissue-specific platform that is distinguished by its ability to go to a wide variety of target organs such as the liver, the central nervous system, and beyond, and also by its ability to package a wide range of genetic cargos. So beyond mRNA, going to things like gene editing constructs or next generation genetic editing uh, technologies and to deliver these cargos to specific organs and in fact to specific cells in the diseases that we're trying, trying to target. The advantage of this is you know, that payload diversity, which is very important and has been a major limitation. Delivery has been a major limitation to um, genetic, you know, next generation gene editing and uh, the widespread use of genetic cargoes as a therapeutic modality. These sort LNPs can also be re-dosed and unlike gene therapy, so they have the potential to avoid um, widespread immunogenicity and some of the safety liabilities that for example, have been associated with viral delivery vehicles. So I would say in a nutshell, uh, we go beyond vaccines, beyond the liver. We are a tissue selective um, LNP delivery platform. And because of this, have the ability to uh, enable a wide, widespread use of genetic medicine as a therapeutic modality beyond what has been possible to date.
0: Excellent. And as you mentioned, there's been incredible interest in novel delivery, uh, non-viral delivery technologies for genetic medicines in particular. Um, But getting to the point where you can have extra hepatic uh, delivery and, you know, very targeted tissue trophic delivery has also been a challenge despite an incredible amount of investment and an incredible amount of approaches both within LNPs and outside of LNPs to other technologies. In your mind, what has made the field so challenging and why have new approaches really struggled to get off the ground?
1: Yeah, primarily because LNPs naturally traffic to the liver. And so getting this targeted extrahepatic delivery has been difficult. Um, we have um, a mechanistic process um, identified, which is called endogenous targeting, whereby we detarget the liver. And the way that that is done is through an APOE independent uh, mediated mechanism. So instead of binding to APOE, we bind to other serum proteins, which then have a predilection for receptors in the tissue types that we're trying to, to target. So in the case of the lung, binding to a protein called vitronectin, which is highly expressed in the lung, then allows these LNPs to hone in, much like uh, you know a GPS beacon to the receptor that is the cognate receptor, which is basically married to the protein that it has bound to in serum. And that's really the special source, if you like, for which is um, enabling an APOE-independent mediated targeting mechanism to enable tissue-specific delivery through, to tissues uh, beyond the liver.
0: While having, it sounds like, a still a very precise receptor-defined targeting mechanism so you can get that desired specificity.
1: Correct. And you can drive that specificity not just at the tissue level, but as we've shown with our lung programs, at the cellular level. So actually enabling what we call cell tropism and a clear preferential uptake in disease-relevant cells. And that's very important. Um from the point of view of potency but also of course as it relates to therapeutic index so with our lead program right, in primary ciliary dyskinesia where the cilia cells are dysfunctional because of a genetic uh, biallelic genetic mutation we can deliver through an inhaled mechanism inhaled mrna encoding the gene for the protein that is missing and distinct and deliver it right into the cilia cells which are the precise cells in which um, the mutation has caused these cells to be dysfunctional. And it's really driving that degree of tissue and cellular specificity, which allows us to be highly potent with a very low level of um, off-target side effects.
0: And given the broad number of opportunities that your technology could potentially address. Of course, you mentioned that you have lead programs in the lung, but uh, we saw you also, Recode also has programs in the CNS and in the spleen. How did you arrive at the lung and CF as your, I guess, lead tissue and lead indication for your platform?
1: We followed the science. Um, We are constantly, as you can imagine, screening a large number of uh, different LNP combinations. Um, it's a bit of a combinatorial um, process in discovery and um, and with different therapeutic modalities. So intrathecal, inhaled, uh, we have IV and systemic formulations as well that um, we are trying to uh, determine the the targeting profile of. And so our lung formulations were really the best with the highest specificity and uh, cell tropism. And we had already started to landscape the universe of monogenic and you know genetic diseases with high unmet needs for which this might be highly mm-hmm. applicable. And so we followed the science and started in the lung because no one else had um, had gone there. And also because it's, it's sort of about as far away, other than the CNS, from the liver as you can go. So showing proof of concept there with a novel formulation that is clearly not the liver, de-risks not just the program and the modality, but we think the overall platform as well.
0: Fantastic. And... You you also mentioned that these delivery technologies can be applied to a variety of genetic medicine payloads that could be RNA, that could be gene editors, uh, et cetera. As you think about developing a product, of course, the payload piece is going to be just as critical as the delivery piece. How did you arrive at mRNA as the initial payload to pursue with your approach?
1: Because mRNA was so clinically validated at that point, thanks to COVID, um, and, and, uh, and 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 SIR, siRNA is as well, as as you're aware, as our ASOs, for example. But because mRNA has effectively revolutionized the field of genetic medicine, and because we uh, wanted to, to, to we wanted to have not too many variables um, in the equation, we decided to go with mRNA. The other piece of this, of course, is that if you think about Recode's history, it was really the confluence and coming together of an mRNA targeting technology with a delivery technology. And so we had developed a fair amount of um, competence around our mRNA construct, which is also modified and optimized. And so that was a great natural starting point for us because we have a core competence in mRNA because it had already been clinically validated. Um, And then, of course, bringing together the, the best in class we think delivery capability completed the story.
0: It was really great to hear about how you broke down risk and where the state of the science was as, as it applies to delivery. Kind of a maybe a similar question on on the payload side of things. When selecting varying payloads and even when looking at mRNA, what do you think the biggest challenges in the field are to have real mRNA protein replacement therapies even if you get the RNA to the right tissue?
1: yeah i mean it's a great question and i think i mean some of the some of the limitations have really been around this tissue specific piece and uh you know developmental regulation so not just getting to the tissue, but playing a role in the right biological processes. Um, You know, the other piece has been about, you know, limitations around regulatory functions. So the implications in various cellular processes like gene regulation and how to hone the specificity there. Um, And then, you know, I think understanding the translational science. So how broadly expressed are are these um, different forms of RNA? What? you know what sort of functional diversity have do they have? Um, what are their precise roles in cellular biology? It's not really fully understood. And so I think, you know, with the development of, you know, if you think about RNA biology evolving from its early focus, which has really been protein synthesis to a much broader and deeper understanding now of the diverse roles of RNA in gene regulation and cellular processes and ultimately, you know, the therapeutic potential, I think this is going to continue to be an area of focus. And so with new types of RNA, like circular RNA, for example, um, you know, that, that could be an interesting area of ongoing and evolving research. And certainly as it relates to recode, we are very interested in continuing to test the co-packaging of our LNPs with various forms of, you know, not just RNA modalities, but then also as we talk about gene editing and where that field is going, next generation gene editing in the form of HDR independent editors like base and prime editing Certainly, we are very interested again in sh- in showing how co packaging with the right delivery vehicle can make all the difference in the world with respect to both potency and durability.
0: Fantastic! And uh, you know, we were very very excited to have Recode present last uh, this past spring at our own RNA therapeutics conference. And really, I think. Um, Two of the largest themes that came up, one was, of course, RNA delivery is maybe the number one issue in the field. The second was how the view and understanding of RNA biology is really expanding, as you noted, beyond just protein expression, but into things like non-coding RNAs and other regulatory RNAs. Uh-huh. As you look at the field holistically, what technologies or what approaches do you even, what core biology will play the most significant role in helping the RNA space move forward overall?
1: Uh, So two things. I think um, understanding biology at a level that has, of resolution that has not been possible before will be incredibly helpful. And we see this happening with... you know, single cell gene sequencing and transcriptomics and multiplexing and just on the tool side of the business, much like, I think, you know, low-cost sequencing revolutionized our ability to really uh, do high-throughput discovery. I think now the um, the next iteration of this is using transcriptomics and fields like epitranscriptomics, for example you know, in which you're studying RNA modifications really closely, um, single cell RNA sequencing. And then I think ultimately the role of RNA and things like epigenetics are going to be important areas of research. And that combined with now having the tools to do things like multiplexing and, um, you know, spatial transcriptomics and uh, all these wonderful things are are going to be, I think, uh, the area of focus for the future
0: when you think about these, you know, transformative tools that give us much higher resolution in actually understanding the biology, and, and perhaps as you think about them as recode, do you mainly see these as, you know, I call it preclinical translational tools to understand the mechanism as you go into the clinic? Or do you think these types of, of tools will also um, actually help and support your own clinical studies as well, where you'll be able to evaluate the real you know, kind of clinical impact and core biological effect, maybe even on a cell-specific basis from patients.
1: I hope for the latter, and at the moment we're using it in the former. So um, right now these tools are are really important as part of our armatarium of uh, translational tools that we use to determine whether we are in fact driving the cell tropism f- patterns with gene expression profiling and protein expression um, biomarkers and biomarker discovery to you know uh, help us with our LNP construct. So that's the primary modality right now. So if you think about the cns for example this is the perfect application um, in addition to fact cell sorting to look at you know transcriptomics and um and protein expression uh, and biomarkers to, to determine whether you are in fact penetrating um certain cell types um, like astrocytes or microglia or oligos versus neurons so that's an important uh, use case for us um but i also think um as we look at the future you know always, and this is a big part of what we do here at Recode with our lead programs, that correlation between biomarkers that drive clinical outcomes will continue to be important. And so the more tools we have at our disposal to be able to tightly hone that correlation, the better. And I think this will continue to be a very important part of of what we do um, to drive both the tight correlation on the on the clinical side, but also high throughput screening and uh, characterization on the discovery and translational sides.
0: And as you know, as you look from where Recode is today, including all of that fantastic and it sounds like very very deep translational biomarker work and analytics that you've done, moving into being a clinical stage company. What are you most excited about for the business looking forward?
1: Well, I'm most excited about um, dosing patients next quarter. Um, in PCD, where patients have a terrible lung disease with a progressive decline and no therapeutic options, it is extremely gratifying to be at the point where we are able to um, make a therapeutic available, albeit in an exploratory phase 1b study, um, to look at, you know, whether we can correct the underlying um, pathological deficit. And so, so, and and to know that the biomarkers that we are looking at have high predictive um, ability and high predictive utility for clinical proof of concept. And so as a company, um, our first biomarker study will start later this year and we'll have some data in Q1 of next year. And that data we think will have excellent predictive value to proof of concept because we are looking at video microscopy and um, transmission electron microscopy to define actually um, restoring the, the, the dysfunctional architecture in the cilia cells that are the primary reason for the clinical phenotype then we go into proof of concept and we look at FEV1 and lung function. And we know that there's a good correlation between, for example, moving mucus, mucociliary clearance and things and, and parameters such as FEV1. So that's that's where I'm very excited, uh, most excited about for us as a company. But then at, at the macro level, I'm excited about our being the delivery partner to the world. Because when we drive proof of concept and, and show that this works through clinical translation, I think uh, the ability to do this with other diverse genetic payloads uh, becomes a lot more interesting. So doing next generation gene editing and trying to drive to functional cures in diseases such as cystic fibrosis, not just replacing the missing protein, but fundamentally editing the underlying defects so that these patients can achieve such high levels of, um, you know, functional efficacy that it's almost uh, equivalent to a cure. That's what I'm really excited about driving. That's the holy grail um, in diseases such as CF, cystic fibrosis, and um, I'm excited about uh, what we can do.
0: We will be eagerly, eagerly watching those initial results to to come out. And, you know, going going off that point and some of the topics you brought up around translation earlier, as you start to see some of these initial clinical readouts from from Recode and others, do you think that will enable a real step change as we look into genetic medicines, where perhaps we'll start seeing a lot more programs move into the clinic much faster as we really sharpen our understanding of what data sets are truly predictive and what aren't?
1: Absolutely. I expect that to be the case. There are um, a number of our um, colleagues in other companies are right at that cusp of showing, you know, clinical data after showing some spectacular biomarker data. So I think that will be key. We're right at, at the cusp of, of seeing that. I think the other component is regulatory. So, um, you know, it's been a, a fairly tough um, regulatory environment for genetic medicines, particularly yes. gene editing in the US of so the number of companies put on clinical hold. But I do expect now as the dialogue with the FDA and in fact the commitment by the FDA, which has been very clear, you know, to not be um, a roadblock, um, as that, as we start to work through some of that and some of, some of the companies that are on clinical hold or partial holds come off hold, I think that will be absolutely critical in terms of de-risking the idea that the regulatory path to the clinic um, is now no longer an issue.
0: Excellent. And hopefully uh, some of those holds will be lifted and we'll have a little more certainty on the regulatory side around the same time that, that your data is reading out.
1: Exactly. We, we hope for a great uh, congruence there.
0: Is there uh, if, if you're open to, to sharing, as your initial clinical study reads out for the CF program, what most excites you about what's next for Recode? Of course, you'll continue to move that program forward and make a difference for patients. You have other lung programs. You have, uh, it looked like, some uh, genetic editing approaches in yes. your pipeline already, as well as other organs. Is there one area that you'd pick as um, the, the, maybe the next clinical readout you'd be really excited about?
1: Well, I think our gene editing portfolio is coming along really beautifully because we have solved for delivery. We are in a unique position to uh, partner with multiple next generation gene editing platforms and, in fact, even become a potential consolidator in the field of gene editing. So I think as um, as we continue to progress and do this, uh, this idea that we uh, can really enable um, diversity of gene editing Uh, technologies, and actually cherry pick the right gene editing um, platform for the right therapeutic indication enabled by our delivery platform based on tissue specificity um, is something that I think could be really transformational for the field. So we're very, very excited about that and the, the high potential of our gene editing portfolio.
0: Fantastic. And looking at, I guess the the overall macro environment for, for biotech, we touched on, I guess maybe the li- the macro level a little bit for gene editing. But looking at for the overall biotech envir- environment, following a you know following a really really great sugar high from the COVID years, it feels like sentiment has uh, really taken a, a big hit. I know for us, even in the past month, we've seen you know what I'd call significant de- deterioration in overall enthusiasm in the space particularly for uh, some of the most exciting areas of science for a lot of really early-stage innovative platform companies almost across fields. As you think about Recode and these exciting clinical readouts coming up, how has the downturn impacted your business and impacted how you think about prioritizing next steps for the company?
1: There's no question that um, it's been tough. And, you know, every day I hear stories from friends and colleagues that are, you know, just really um, toughing it out in the market, trying to raise the next round or to get it closed. And, you know, and the sentiment has really been, I would say, risk off for the most part, which is unfortunate, particularly for fields like genetic medicine. Um, So I would say it's certainly caused, um, given us, reason to be very focused around uh, programs that are likely to um, generate near-term value inflection and clinical milestones. Um, You know, it's really been an environment for operators to be very prudent about how we manage resources and resource allocation, and that's all been good. I mean, the the continued focus on, you know, really optimizing our capital uh, allocation um, and portfolio prioritization has is always a good thing to do and and, and it also forces you on um, the decision- making side to to be really evidence-based in the way that um one does things so that so that's been good i think um i think there is an appetite to continue to fund uh, great companies with great science that have near-term value inflection points with great teams you know that are going to be able to pivot in any environment and continue to build great companies. So I don't think the thesis around biotech innovation has necessarily gone stale. I think what we just see is a macro environment and an overhang, which unfortunately has clouded the pictures, particularly for generalists. Um, And um, it just means that specialists have to come in and step up. And I do hope that some of the IPOs, which are on deck do well. Because I think the other part of this is valuation sensitivity and price sensitivity. And um, you're absolutely right. We, the heyday of, you know, getting out on the hype of a, a platform story, which is light years away from the clinic is unable um, to be sustained. And that's probably a good thing because after all, the goal for all of us should be to get new treatments and new innovative treatments to patients and make a difference and have an impact. And um, and that should be the focus. And so, I'm not too disheartened by that. Um, uh, but I do wish that um, that we move away from a risk-off mentality to taking more bets on good teams and good science, and and understanding that our business is very cyclical, and that at some point things will change. And um, now is the time, you know, to invest in in people and in science that will have the promise of really, um, you know, generating new treatments uh, in, in the time frame in which we know things will turn around.
0: Well, and uh, of course, while business is cyclical, science may not be so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've, uh, of course, shown some recent excess, success despite those macro, the macro headwinds and Uh, closed a fantastic Series B financing. So firstly, congratulations on that. Um, But being, uh, you know, one could say um, next generation technology, potentially higher risk bet, at least compared to maybe less transformative assets that have clinical data in hand. What would you say is most critical to your success in getting new investors on board and getting that fundraise done?
1: So I think having a clear and systematic story and plan about how we are differentiated first and foremost, and secondly, about how we drive to the clinic and clinical proof of concept was absolutely critical. We have a very tight um, strategy, you know, to both de-risk our platform on the one hand, validate it, on the other hand, um, with biomarker and clinical data, and then ultimately expand it into areas that make sense. And that, I think, clearly resonated with investors. Um, so, it, But it's not just a platform. It's, it's, it's a portfolio of clinical programs um, for which we'll see clinical data very soon. So that was clearly uh, essential, as was having a strong base of insider support. I would say the fact that um, we have some really great investors, you know, pedigree, blue chip investors, um, and most, if not all of the people on my board are in fact operators, people that have successfully, have been successful entrepreneurs, have started and founded companies, have weathered companies, you know, through troughs and peaks and who understand what that, um what is required has also been critical. So our our, our B one, two, and three came together with at least fifty percent insider support, and with new investors, you know, who who clearly see the path to um, meaningful clinical milestones and and value inflection points, and that was absolutely critical.
0: And you mentioned um, the importance of capital efficiency and and how you've taken, I'd say, a very balanced strategy through your portfolio to really prioritize programs that are both on their own going to drive value as assets as well as de-risk your broader platform. Did Recode always have a very disciplined, you know, perhaps programmatic focused point of view? Or earlier on in the company's history, was it also taking, like many platform companies have, a very broad view on development kind of across a large number of preclinical opportunities that you then had to pivot from to refocus on driving kind of a clear lead program into the clinic?
1: yeah it's an excellent question and i would say it's uh, um it's been a bit of both i think in the early stages of the company's uh trajectory it was really more on optimizing the platform learning as much as we can about our lipid formulations and uh you know how best to deploy them uh to to you know drive you, tissue biodistribution and cell tropism. But then uh, I think since I joined the company, we were in the fortunate place, and I was in the fortunate place, and kudos and credit to everyone who had done all of the legwork in maturing the platform to that point, where we could now look at our clinical portfolio and say, what are we going to drive to the clinic really hard? Where do we see the best data? What tissue type do we start with in terms of sort of our clinical maturation story, right? And the lung was the obvious one. But then things like CNS sort of fell out of that as well, as you know, great for partnering, great for doing you know CNS monogenic diseases, and and that's and that's where we decided to double down. I mean, as a practical matter, we will keep lung and liver indications for ourselves, but we will probably end up partnering um, things like CNS opportunities and you know vaccines. And so it it was a question of. It's a long way of answering your question, but I think the bottom line is the platform has to mature to a point at which you have the luxury of being able to think through a clinical portfolio and development strategy. And we were right at the cusp of doing that when I came on board, and were then able to accelerate uh, rapidly into the clinic because we've got great assays, uh, great predictive uh, models, in vivo models, and in vitro assays. And that enabled us to literally, you know, file the CTAs and get into the clinic in the past 18 months.
0: And uh, of course, uh, being the great deal maker that you are, it sounds like you've already done the exercise of thinking through. Well, Recode can't do everything. Where are really the opportunities that it makes more sense to partner? But uh, uh, meeting sell side, you know, find a larger partner to help move those programs forward. But of course, in a current market that is as challenged as this one, and yeah, uh, a lot of companies where maybe there are a lot more. Um, attractive opportunities from a valuation perspective than there were when the market was a lot hotter and being the creative dealmaker that you are. Are there any types of opportunities or technologies that you're keeping an eye on if there's an opportunity to expand what Recode's doing today?
1: Absolutely. So I would say next generation gene editing companies that have high capital needs that you know, may not make it or may not be able to um, finance uh, would be great examples of companies that we could marry with our innovative delivery solutions. Because I, you know, I firmly believe most of the disruption that happens happens at the intersection, you know, of technologies and bringing together a best-in-class delivery platform with a best-in-class gene editing platform would absolutely be the way to go. And let's face it, I don't think we're going to get therapeutics to market um, with one or the other, it will really need, I think, both both platforms to to be, you know, to proliferate and to uh, kind of enable the potency of each other's, um, you know, a kind of ability to drive these therapeutics to to market ultimately. So we're, we've definitely landscaped um, the universe of gene editing technologies, and they don't need to be. Just companies, these could be in academia, they could be, you know, out of um, many luminary, um, you know, thought leaders labs. So there's a variety of places at which we could find this. And so we're keeping an eye on that. But uh, but the flip side of it is we will also partner, um, you know, in areas such as CNS, for example, where there is high interest from pharma, you know, if you can find uh, a way to get broad parenchymal distribution and cell tropism in specific cell types like microglia, for example, in the case of neurodegenerative diseases, what what an advance that would be for the field?
0: It it certainly it certainly would be. Uh you know, as as you've thought about where to develop and, and where to partner that. CNS as a space certainly has a a ton of interest from large pharma in it, particularly following uh, how how the Alzheimer's field has been shaping up alongside some recent approvals in ALS. Uh, If you can share, um, was there a particular reason that you decided uh, to deprioritize some of the CNS programs, at least for your own internal development and focus on those as partnering opportunities rather than taking a big home run bet on uh, your own neuroinflammatory microglia program?
1: Um, I think it's purely a function of where we are with um, the technology maturation. So, you know, defining these formulations that we know with a high degree of certainty can actually get into the cell types of interest, that's right at the point at which we are right now. So we may well decide that it's compelling enough and that We'd like to go forward in kind of a genetic form of ALS or or, or Alzheimer's ultimately, but um, you know I would say it's a bit premature to make that distinction right away. But as a, as a strategic um, sort of imperative, we have to focus, and I think focusing yes. in the lung was the right decision, and um, and partnering for now, but that could change based on data.
0: Very well said. And Pivoting the conversation a little bit, of course, one topic we wanted to make sure we got to discuss with you was diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI in biotech, given uh, your activism in the space and, and your support of so many DEI initiatives. So as an experienced biotech CEO, board member, and Women in Bio's board-ready program, high level, even before getting to DEI, what qualities do you think make a good member, a good board member? And why is it important to focus on diversity as a major criteria in shaping board composition when there are so many other, you know, factors to consider. You know, things like just expertise, specific technical knowledge, connectivity, rolodexes, et cetera?
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing to say is none of these are mutually exclusive. So I would say, you know, on the question of what makes for a good board member, I mean, it's it's critical to have achieved mastery in a particular area or areas and to be known for <laughs> and to have that be validated by others. I mean, some of the advice I often give to my friends and colleagues who are seeking out board roles is don't do it too prematurely because you you have to ultimately, it's about credibility and respectability and likability and, um, and cultural fit, I would say. And so, but, you know, there is a sequence to which that um, actually makes sense. And when you're sitting on the other side of the table, what people are really looking for is your ability to generate insights about data and ask incisive questions that are, you know, important uh, for, you know, for kind of the strategic choices that get made. So it's, it's a different form of value add and it can only happen when you have enough experience, um, enough mastery, and, um, you know, have seen enough kind of scenarios play out, you know, both good and bad. And I think those are the experiences that ultimately make for the best um, board members, you know, people that have a trophy in terms of their experience. and, And then, of course, it's the leadership component, which is more a function of, you know, again, having managed Variety, you know, teams in a global, you know, global environment often, and um, trying to understand some of the nuances, you know, that are involved, uh, both in terms of markets, but also in terms of how people operate in different um, settings. So all of that is is really important, and then the question of diversity. I I think this is, you know, it's it's as much about cognitive diversity as it is about the aperture through which you view a problem statement. You know, um, my my experiences, for example, in the developing world, in practicing in the NHS, have been absolutely invaluable in really trying to understand and relate what what is the patient's fundamental experience. In accessing the healthcare system. You know, what does that really look and feel like? I mean, we have the high science on the one hand, but like but what what is it that really matters to a patient at the end of the day? And that that has been really important. And that's that's more of a of an experiential and cognitive diversity perspective that I bring, in addition to kind of, you know, my my gender and kind of my um my ethnic background. And so I think I think all of that is important. Um, it's it's ultimately about enhancing the quality of decision making, because you have these diverse perspectives that think about that enable you to think about the problem in different ways. Um, and then I'd like to say that there's a strong argument to be made for, you know, the the high quality decision making leading to better business outcomes, you know, that hasn't been been proven beyond a shadow of doubt, but I would say the cultural environment at the board tends to be more functional when diverse perspectives are um, represented. And I would say the quality of uh, the decision-making is also enhanced.
0: And would you say that, you know, having much greater diversity in both cognitive backgrounds as well as Personal backgrounds may also help with groupthink, I guess. Do you find that uh, people of who course. come from a diverse perspective may be more likely to challenge what is, you know, an established, taken-for-granted viewpoint that may not actually be the right answer?
1: oh absolutely and you know with all the focus right now on on diversity in clinical trials on you know helping drive better in- inclusion in terms of you know kind of patients that are studied and ultimately getting treatments to diverse patient groups i mean women's health for example has been significantly underrepresented in terms of the kind of investment dollars that go into women's health you know or reproductive health or um you know diseases that affect minority groups for example so you know and one why is that? You know, and I think some of that is, is precisely related to what you just said, which is we think about these big markets and opportunities, um, you know, in sort of maybe in con- two conventional ways. And having that representation allows us to, to, to you know, raise the awareness about the pockets in society that are still, that still have iron met need, that are still accessible and need to be tapped and could actually be great areas for further innovation, and so I think all of that really does help.
0: And how do you think about a board's role in pushing for diversity? Is that mainly just at the top board or senior management level, or do you think board should also take a role in helping drive diversity initiatives across the organization? Because as you said, uh, it is important that board members and leaders have the right expertise and background to be able to have strong competence on a board, but it's really then important to have a pipeline of candidates that are able to get to that level and able to build those experiences so that they can then join boards in the future.
1: Absolutely. I I think both are important. Um, Culture gets set at the top and setting the right enabling environment for people of all kinds and colors, you know, and orientations to thrive in is, um, is absolutely critical. I think it could be a key differentiator, you know, for companies that want to attract talent, uh, and the war for talent doesn't go away, especially in biotech hubs like Boston and the Bay Area. Oh, yes. So, so having a unique cultural identity, identity and milieu within which to attract, um, you know, kind of people of all colors and is really, really important, colors and orientations, and so I think I think that that's absolutely essential in when, you know, when you think about the war for talent equation separately, I think it's about developing the next generation of talent. And, you know, I am involved, as you said, in the Women in Bio's Boardroom Ready program, which has been extraordinarily successful in, you know, graduating people who feel like they are ready later, but accelerating their readiness to ready now, and, you know, enabling access to kind of the pools of Opportunities that are out there, and that's been absolutely wonderful. We've literally put hundreds of of diversity candidates and women on boards, um, but also through the biotech CEO sisterhood, which is also very committed as part of our overall agenda um, to drive and foster the next generation of talent. So that you know, when we look at these metrics around. How many biotech CEOs are you know not white males, for example, or yes. um, or Fortune 500 companies, or whatever you want to use as your de- denominator? That we're seeing the pull through through um, you know through this fostering of next generation talent in the C-suite on management teams, you know, into the boardroom ultimately to help drive the funnel of leadership talent that is going to sustain this industry long term.
0: In you know, as you've seen the industry evolve and, you know, even with your current vantage point, what would you say are the most major bottlenecks or most major barriers that you still see uh, in terms of increasing uh, diversity within the biotech industry and especially increasing diversity at those senior kind of leadership levels?
1: Believe it or not, I still think it's, it's, it's fundamentally about um, putting the diversity agenda on the table as part of kind of it being a business imperative. In California, we had some bulls which were extremely useful in sort of providing a bit of a, a an incentive for companies to start thinking about it. But I will tell you, based on first-hand experience, as soon as those bulls disappeared, the subject of diversity disappeared. Like, it, it, it sort of almost reverted overnight in some cases back to who do we know and, um, you know, like, almost a kind of back to the word of mouth kind of old boys club form of of board recruiting which was really unfortunate because because it should, it shouldn't we shouldn't need a quota in this industry to do the right thing what we should do is be trying to make the best decisions around people and talent that are going to solve really hard technical technical and technological challenges, you know, to enable better innovation and then driving access to to that innovation to as many patients, you know, in the world that can benefit. I mean, philosophically, I would love to see us get behind that mission and continue to, you know, drive and do whatever it takes to do that. I mean, as a practical matter, it used to be we don't know where these people are. Well, one of the things we did in the Boardroom Ready uh, program was develop an executive directory of people with profiles, which is easy to access and market it to different stakeholder groups, you know, like board chairs and venture capitalists and, and um, you know, companies that were interested. I think the other initiative which has helped is NASDAQ coming out and saying, you know, this will be an important part of the ESG agenda and looking at um, you know more disclosures around transparency around diversity and um and other you know initiatives so that that all helps and i think it's not just any one thing i think it's it's all of those things that um, we need to continue to pay attention to and be intentional about you know what what is the what is the outcome we're trying to drive on this dimension and how can we all do our part to facilitate it
0: And as you think about, you know, pushing for, I'd say, proactivity and making a really directive effort towards building these kinds of diversity initiatives, I'd imagine that one of the challenges in, you know, organizing broader lists and, you know, even going beyond not just a who do we know network, but getting to a truly diverse pool of candidates is that diversity includes so many intersections because you have, you know, of course, gender, race, nationality, sexual orientation, et cetera. How do you think about balancing all of those different types of backgrounds and the intersections between all of them uh, when you look towards making, you know, a more, or as you would advise a company perhaps, and making a more uh, directed push for diversity within the organization?
1: Yeah, I mean, it starts with culture and values and, you know, setting the kinds of values that are likely to attract candidates of all kinds and orientations. I mean, one of our key values is be curious, be kind, be yourself. You know, it's that simple. So, um, you know, uh, creating an inclusive environment and a culture in which Everyone feels like they can bring their best to work and thrive in is is absolutely essential. That's something you can do independent of whether you're a five person startup or, you know, a five hundred thousand person company. So so that's simple. I think um, the other way to do this is more intentionally is to adopt certain guidelines like the Rooney rule, you know, where you where you say to uh, your people team, you know, for every position that gets posted, let's ensure that we look at a few people from non-traditional schools from non-traditional mm. backgrounds i mean there, there there are a myriad of ways to be intentional about how do you how you go about uh, and seek out people from talent pools that otherwise may not have been as accessible uh one of the things we've done here and you know even as a young company was build relationships with universities you know that that have access to diverse populations that, um, you know, build an RA internship program, for example, that is likely to attract people from that. We can then continue to funnel and mentor and, you know, into full-time positions and roles, which has been, you know, really, really good. And so I think you just have to be creative about some of the stuff. It doesn't cost a lot of money. What it takes is, um, an intention and a willingness to do it and, um, and, do it in a fit-for-purpose manner, which is exactly what we've done.
0: Fantastic. And I, I know we're almost out of time here, but uh, I I have to ask, you know, coming from someone with, with a really not just impressive, but a unique background, coming from uh, as a practicing physician in South Africa that made these fantastic career tra- uh, transitions and uh, built up to being the CEO of an exciting, transformative biotech company... What would your actionable advice be to people coming from a, a you know, call it non-unique background that could be, a minor, you know, a minority racial group or could be someone who is, as you said, simply does not come from the Ivy League, you know, kind of Stanford background that seems to really dominate the industry uh, to further advance their education and career in life sciences?
1: Conceptually, I would say, um, first and foremost, believe that you have a superpower. Uh, and secondly, find it. And thirdly, leverage it, you know, in the way that um, is connected to a, a, a mission that you can get behind and identify with. Because my strong feeling about, you know, leaders that I've seen that have been extraordinarily successful is that it's, it's not just about leading with your head. It's really about leading with your heart. And um you know, having the fundamental belief to recognize what you can be really good at and how you can leverage those skills in whatever context you happen to find yourself, you know to make a difference. you know And making a difference is so core to who I am as a human and as a leader on so many different dimensions. and it has always been um, my North Star and what has guided my actions, my career choices and the kinds of activities that I've chosen to be involved with. And I and I say that, you know, everyone has a superpower. You need to believe that you have it, find it, and then leverage it in a way that can be maximally impactful. So um, that's the simple story. <laughs>
0: Well, and it's really fantastic to to hear and and see how you've been taking your superpower and and really focused on paying that forward uh, to to the next generation as as well. So uh, it's been a, a real pleasure to connect and speak with you today. And you know, as a last closing wrapping up question, uh, what are you most optimistic about for the future of Recode and the future of biotech? <laughs>
1: Well, I've uh, I've alluded to this. It's a loaded question, I would say. It's uh, empowering that next wave of genetic medicine. Uh, we've all seen the transformational impact that, you know, small molecules, antibodies, biospecifics have had in the world. We're coming into our own around RNA therapeutics and around uh, gene therapy and gene editing um, as a modality that can really, you know, reach for the the proverbial therapeutic stars, and enable functional cures. And that's where we need to go. It's no longer just about symptomatic treatments, but it's about reaching for functional cures. And I believe that genetic medicines uh, are the future of functional cures.
0: Shainaz, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. I enjoyed learning more about Recode, your thoughts on the industry overall, and views on how to continue to move DEI forward within the industry. I wanna thank everyone for listening to this episode of BioTalk. We look forward to welcoming you to our next episode where we will continue discussing areas of current interest in biotech. Please share this with all your friends and colleagues so we can grow the audience. This is Daniel Brog for Biotalk signing off.